Hello and welcome once again to the Live Happy Now podcast. I'm your host, J.R. Houston. Thrilled that you are making us a part of your day wherever you are in the world, however you may be listening. We are glad that you are here. Also glad for our partner, Life Reimagined. Their website is lifereimagined.org. And if you haven't checked it out yet, what are you waiting for? They got all kinds of processes for you to try and resources to consider as you make that journey toward your peak happiness. Because as you awaken to the power of happiness, so do your dreams. So what's next? Find out more at lifereimagined.org. Well, it is entirely possible that the secret to happiness is actually simple. And in Live Happy's book, Live Happy, 10 Practices for Choosing Joy, you can discover how surprisingly easy everyday acts can lead to lifelong joy and fulfillment as proven by the latest research in positive psychology. Now, the best part about this book is that it's organized around these key components of creating a happy life. And they tell you all about those components and what you need to do to apply them to your lives. And then they give you realistic, real-world, real-life inspirational stories from regular folks just like you and me and celebrities. And the book is available online and in bookstores across the nation right now you can go to choosingjoybook.com for more information if you would like to purchase it now in this episode live happy science editor paula phelps spoke with steve leventhal on one of 10 practices for choosing joy resilience steve by the way is the executive director of corestone which is an international non-governmental organization that develops and provides personal resilience programs to improve well-being for youth worldwide and focuses on adolescent girls in developing countries as critical change agents in their communities. We've got evidence-based programs impacting three interdependent factors in well-being, emotional health, physical health, and education. Well, Steve, you have so many things that you can tell us about resilience, and, and I wondered if, to begin with, if you could kind of put it in context for us and, and tell us about the area in India where you're providing um, education for the young girls. Sure. Uh, to date, we've implemented resilience projects in uh, f- approximately five states across India, um, but the largest work by far is in the state of Bihar, uh, which is one of the poorest states in India. It's in the northeast. Uh, the population of Bihar alone is over 100 million people, uh, so a very, very large state. Um, rural poverty is widespread there. Uh, 95% of women have less than... 12 years of education, 80% or more are married before age, age of 18. Uh, I think over 75% or 70% or so have their first pregnancy before age 18. Uh, so early marriage is, is, is a serious issue. Poverty is a is, uh, serious issue, sexual discrimination, uh, abuse. Uh, the typical attendee in our program, uh, which is called Girls First, uh, is the first generation in her family ever to attend school. And uh, most of them are from what are called um, low castes or Dalits, which are, are basically um, untouchables or low castes, you know, traditionally in India, or they're from uh, remote tribal areas. Now, it's really difficult for us to grasp the concept of the caste system. And until you had explained it to me, I, I don't think like I fully understood how far reaching those ramifications are. Can you kind of touch on, on the caste system and how it it dictates their future? You know, that's a complicated question. And even now after being going to India for several years and making, you know, 20, 30 trips and uh, working with tens of thousands of kids, uh, honestly, I, I don't even know that I'm qualified to answer, answer that question because the caste system is something, uh, you know, it's very foreign to us. Um, it, it's, uh, we're of course 
familiar with discrimination in other ways here in the United States, but this takes uh, the institutionalization of discrimination to a level that's far beyond you know anything that that we're accustomed to. Uh, the caste system itself was outlawed um, when India be- uh, shortly after India became independent, uh, but mo- and in some areas, certainly in the more metropolitan areas, Mumbai or Delhi, for example, or, or areas in Chennai. Um, uh, Cast plays less of a role, um, but even today, actually, as we're doing this interview, there's large demonstrations happening because of a suicide that just recently happened um, in uh, a, a university uh, where uh, a student, uh, uh, excuse me, and a, and a teacher, uh, teacher was uh, um, ostracized for being from a lower caste, and, and uh, he, he killed himself. So it's nice. still very per- pervasive. It's very pervasive as an issue in the slums. Uh, we very frequently encounter instances where uh, people from outside of the slums, for example, may come in and uh, beat up uh, people living in the slums because somebody from a lower caste was seen, for example, with a girl uh, who may have been from an upper caste or, or vice versa. Uh, so um, sadly, the caste system is alive and well. Um, and uh, you can tell very rapidly when you meet somebody from their name and you know, their skin and where they're from, et cetera, uh, which caste they belong to. And um, it does consciously or, let's say, or perhaps subconsciously permeate into pretty much everything. At least that's my perception as, a, as an outsider. And so why is it that you would choose such a challenging re- region to implement the resilience-based curriculum? Um, well, either sanity or insanity. I'm not sure which. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's certainly uh, other areas uh, where you could make progress in this, but this is, sure. you know, to go so. Uh, that's one thing I was really impressed with is just how challenging this particular area is for and, everyone and yet involved. We're seeing, yeah, and yet we're seeing fantastic results. So, um, you know, our mission, uh, Corestone, uh, our, our organization's mission is really focused on marginalized, underserved, economically disadvantaged youth. Um, and we particularly focus on girls uh, because research shows that girls really can serve as critical change agents in their community. I mean, 90% of the world's children and adolescents live in low and middle income countries. Many people don't realize that. And that includes around 250 million girls that are living in poverty. So this is a situation that's certainly not unique to India, but India is, is of course, a very large country uh, going through uh, rapid but extremely uneven growth. Um, and we look for places where, where poverty is endemic and there's chronic adversity such as child labor and you know, physical and emotional abuse and sexual abuse and sexual discrimination, early marriage and, and pregnancy. There's serious implications from a health point of view and situations where there's medical complications from pregnancy and childbirth and you know, so from a from an organization's point of view, given where our mission is, uh, it made sense for us to uh, essentially dive right in. And uh, and I will add uh, that working in such a large country and such a complicated country, honestly, we thought if we have impact here, uh, probably will have impact, you know, pretty much anywhere because um, uh, it is a bit of a microcosm of of yeah. what's happening in in many areas around the world and and does give us a chance to, to, to really see what kind of impacts we can have under very, very complex uh, environments. Extreme situations, for sure. Now, now, you have said that 
learning these skills doesn't just change the girl, that it changes the trajectory of the entire family. Can you explain how that works? It's been widely known, actually, for, for quite some time in, 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 I guess what I'll say, development circles, people who work in, in the field of global development, um, that an investment in girls yields what's known as, as, as a multiplier effect. In other words, when a girl is uh, better educated, when she has access to sexual and reproductive health care information and services, when she has access and control, uh, some sort of control over the, her economic assets, when there's safety from violence and ex- exploitation and so on, um, and when you give them, provide them the capabilities and the confidence to make positive choices, which is really the what the tools of resilience are all about, and that's what that's what we focus on. That when you have all of that, you really can break the cycle of poverty. It's been very well well documented. And what happens is these benefits don't just occur to the girl or the young woman herself, but they also really transmit across generations and really uh, out to the community at at large. And. Can you explain for us, kind of, we, we understand what resilience is. Can you explain what a resilience-based curriculum is and, and how that functions and is different than, say, what we might normally see? So first, it's, it's important to distinguish between what we would call the tools of surviving versus the tools for thriving. And that may sound a little bit trite, but, but in life, you know, for all of us, um, having the tools to survive is very different than the tools to to thrive. So if you were to think, for example, about children living in a slum, for example, they are facing situations that honestly would knock me flat in an instant, right? They have extremely well-honed tools for survival, which are tools that I, that for example, I may, may or may not have. But the question is like, what are the tools for thriving? What are the tools that help you to get out of survival mode and to live a flourishing and satisfying life where you have more than just, let's say, the basic needs um, that enable you to survive. So that's the first point. The second point really is it's important to define, to define what kind of resilience we're, we're focused on and, and what kind of resilience we, we uh, try to impart uh, in our curriculum. So, for example, the use of the term of resilience over the last several years has really exploded, right? In the mainstream press, in, in the mainstream lexicon, we hear about economic resilience and disaster resilience um, and emotional resilience and so on. But research going back many, many years has shown that there's one particular kind of resilience, which is primary, which impacts all other types of resilience, and that is emotional resilience. So that's where we begin our focus in our curriculum. And emotional resilience is really about your thoughts, and your emotions and your behaviors, starting with, for example, you know, self-concept. Who am I? What are my strengths? For example, the notion of character strengths from positive psychology is something that's very helpful and useful and something that we spend a lot of, a lot of time on. So um, when we think about resilience, we really try to think from what we would call from the inside out, uh, what, we, what we consider working from the inside out. Again, self-concept then more into my strengths and then interpersonal skills, social and emotional, um, you know, interactions, uh, problem solving, conflict resolution. And so in the curriculum, we basically focus on all of that. And, and 
I would add that particularly in environments with extremely low resources, like where we work, um, where there may or may not be a loving, supportive individual available, you know, to a child, doing this work in groups, as we do, we find is very, very important. Because in the groups, the girls can really learn uh, how to support each other, how to work together, for example, to confront sexual harassment on their way to school or find ways to get safe drinking water at their school, for example, something which can often be a problem, and we've seen them come up with, with their own solutions to that. Um, goal setting is another extremely important skill, something that we really take for granted here in the West, I think. When you're working in an environment of multi-generational poverty, multi-generational uh, casteism, where it's literally in what I would call your emotional DNA, that you're from a low caste and that uh, your ability to affect your environment is really minimal. I mean, it's something that's just pervasive in your everyday life and coming down to you through, you know, again, through multiple generations. So the concept of goals, short-term goals, long-term goals, is something that we have found is very, very new um, to the children. And sometimes not even just to the children, even to women that we train um, to facilitate our program with, with uh, children. We try to bring in not just the identification of goals, but, you know, how would you use your character strengths? How would you use the skills, your social skills? How would you use the power of the group and so on to work towards those goals? And is it a new concept just to teach them what character strengths are and that they have them? Because it, as, my, as I understand, really they've been taught they're nothing, and so why would they have anything called character strengths? I don't think I could overemphasize <laughs> really how new it is. I can't tell you how many schools I have gone to, literally, where the first words out of a child's mouth is, nobody ever told us we had strengths. Oh, Imagine, nobody ever told us we had strengths. So it's just not even in your, you know, just in your, in your, self, in your self identity, um, the sense that you could possibly advocate for yourself, stand up for yourself, uh, change the trajectory of your life. Uh, the, the, the issue of self-efficacy is something that we have found very, very, very interesting. Just that, that simple notion that my thoughts, behaviors, you know, actions can have an impact on my environment. And as they learn this, obviously they're taking it home, and are there mixed results? Do some families embrace it, or do they say, oh, that, you know, those are crazy ideas. <laughs> Why would you believe that you, you really aren't anything? What kind of response sure. do they see uh, from the family? Uh, it's a great question because, of course, these children are bringing these skills back to their parents, and their parents, of course, were taught the same thing when, when, when they were young. Uh, and it's reinforced in their, you know, their everyday life. By and large, I would say the vast majority of families have been very, very supportive. Of course, there's instances uh, where the father in particular may not be because they feel threatened by, by the skills. But one of the interesting things that we found is that, for example, when a girl goes home and advocates to her parents, particularly her father, not to be married off at, let's say, age 14, 15, and to be allowed to remain in school. What they've done, and we've, we've, we've shown this through a, a major randomized control trial we've done, and it's been very well documented, that they don't just go in and say, go back and say, hey, you need to, you know, don't marry me off, blah, 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 blah. But they use specific strengths and strategies where they are able to explain to their parent what the benefits are to the parents and to the family 
to all of them in allowing the child to remain in school. So her health will be better. She'll be able to bring some kind of income into the family. Um, certain strategies that she may have learned around, around uh, taking care of her health, for example, or, or safe water or hygiene, things like that, that the parents who may or may not be familiar with, she brings those skills back home um, and shows them strategies, strategies of how to implement that you know, in their own lives. So we've seen, by and large, we're seeing a lot of support for, um, from the families. And how is that continuing to have a multiplier effect uh, in their communities as more and more girls are being taught character strength and, and learning about resilience? How is it affecting the rest of their community? We've seen a number of instances where uh, a child, for example, doesn't just go back and advocate for the delay of her own marriage, but she was able to delay, uh, delay for example, the marriage of her sibling, maybe another uh, child from a different family in the community, sometimes a cousin who may live, you know, miles and miles away in a different village. So we've seen that there's changes in the life, not just of the individual, but in the parents, the siblings, village members, extended family, other classmates at school. We've seen school attendance go up, school engagement uh, improves. So all of that, I think, combined um, gives us a sense that there's changes that are happening, uh, not just with the individual, you know, herself, but also, you know, within the community at large. And then, of course, you also have to think about any particular girl who's in our program will certainly be married within the next few years. And so does she, in turn, bring these skills to her children? And does she end up uh, raising them differently than she was raised or her parents were raised or or multi-generations of, of their of family members have been, have been raised. And that's something I feel very positive and confident about, that even children, even some of the girls in our groups or in our program that may or may, well, you know, maybe, maybe will be successful in the worst case of helping them delay their marriage, let's say, for a few months or six months or a year, still not, you know, still not, let's say, adequate. But we will have started this cycle of change. And our hope is that the skills that girls are learning today in the program are skills that they're going to in turn impart, uh, not just to their parents, but to their children as, as, as they begin to raise them. And you've also taught so many teachers how to teach this curriculum. So that's got to make a huge impact in their communities because I'm sure it's not just the girls that they're teaching, but they're sharing these same principles with other people they interact with. The way the program is delivered, we either train local community women in a slum, for example, how to facilitate the program, and then they meet approximately once a week with the girls for about an hour to do our curriculum, and then they'll do that, let's say, over, over once a week for about six months. Or we work in schools where we uh, go in and we train the school teachers uh, in the school how to run the program you know, in the classroom. And uh, which is what you've referred to. And that's been a very exciting experience because we are seeing changes in the way teachers teach and their commitments to the classroom. Uh, and they're in turn reporting different types of, you know, improved relationships with their students um, and, and different types of, inter let's say, of interactions or more, and more improved interactions between the teachers and the students and, and improved engagement at, at the school. And of course, when you train the women, whether they're community women or the school teachers, they are taking those skills back to their own families. 
And in some cases, honestly, when you say you're training the women versus the girl, you know, what constitutes a woman, a woman in India uh, in these environments versus a girl is sometimes not, not too many years uh, because they are typically married off at such a young age. So even though you're teaching this, you're providing the, school, the skills to, to learn about resilience, what have you learned from them about resilience that, that might have surprised you? You know, that's a really interesting question. And I think I'd start by saying that the day-to-day living conditions, the threats, the barriers to well-being of these kids, at first glance are very foreign, let's say, to the living conditions that, you know, maybe I'm accustomed to or probably most people who might be listening to this podcast, for example. I mean, even, even to call a school a school is a bit of a misnomer, right? There's these, these schools where we work, and we're now in, you know, several hundred schools. Um, there's few, if any, books, student-to-teacher ratios can be as high as 100 to 1, 100 students to 1, one oh teacher. Oh, my gosh. No glass on the windows, you know, typically no desks or supplies. There's no electricity. School attendance is terrible. Um, and then you couple all that with severe gender discrimination and caste discrimination, um, you know, Needless to say, the path forward you know, for most of the girls is pretty tough. And yet, even in those con- such conditions, I have found over and over again when I visit a school this, this incredible um, basic, simple joy. I think there's really no other word for it. That, that it's, 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 it's counterintuitive. There's this like, universal desire to thrive and to laugh and to connect and it's such an elemental and indomitable, I guess would be the right word, piece mm-hmm. of ourselves. And, and, and honestly, it really takes so little to bring it out. So I try to focus on the, you know, the spark that brings out the light, right? There's so much light to be had out there. And for people who want to go out and do this kind of work, it's, it's very easy to get bogged down in the obstacles, what's missing, what's lacking, what's wrong, the thousands of years of discrimination and caste society, all those kind of things. And we very deliberately, as, as an organization, our approach, we do not do that. We focus on what's right, right? It, 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 going back to positive psychology, for example. What are the assets that are there? What's right, not what's wrong? And how do we build on that? And how do, this is going back to the metaphor I used, you know, how do you ignite that, if you will, with the sharing and practicing of, of just a few simple skills that really are, really are not very difficult to teach but can have huge ramifications. Uh, ramifications. Yeah, that's terrific. And, you know, for all of us listening, we realize we're in a much better situation, but maybe our resilience skills aren't where they need to be, and there's things that we could learn that you're implementing. So so what are some of the basic things as we wrap this up? What are some of the simple things that we can do to start learning to build resilience in our own lives? There's probably two or three things that come to mind. One is uh, just a, a very short story, if you will, which has always stuck with me, which I was visiting an urban slum area in the city of, uh, of Surat, which is in the state of Gujarat in India in uh, 2011. And my, from my understanding, I was the first, one of the first foreigners who's, who's, who's ever gone to that particular slum. And pretty much everybody who's living in that slum is an untouchable. And I will never forget reaching out and touching the hands of literally hundreds of low-caste slum children, right? Children who'd never met a foreigner and certainly had never, never touched one. And what stuck with me to this day was this very simple, 
elemental power of expressing our shared humanity through a simple touch, you know, a little high five with a child, that kind of connection. And, you know, I'm sure it had some kind of impact somewhere on their lives, but I, I may or may not ever know that, but it really changed mine. And that, that gave me this key left lesson that giving and receiving are the same. And when I think about resilience and, you know, what can we do to build our resilience muscles and all that, so often it's, it's I think we lose the, 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 mutual, the mutuality, let's say, of our interaction with another human being. And when we think we're giving something, we're really receiving something. When we're receiving something, we're really giving something. So that's one thing. The second, I would say, is finding out what your strengths are, character strengths, if you will, how you use them currently in your, in your life, how you might use them differently, identifying one to two strengths that you wish you had more of. For me, for example, it was the strength of persistence, mm-hmm. something I was really weak at for many, many years I, in my own mind. But once I found my mission and you know, a sense of purpose, I realized that was a strength that I, I absolutely knew I had to focus on. And I did. And it, and it has worked. We started with 100 children, 100 children in a small slum area in Delhi in 2009. This year we'll be serving over 50,000. That's amazing. Absolutely. And amazing. thank you. And, and, and the last is I would just say one of my favorite exercises that we teach the kids, and it's something I used to do with my child, with my daughter when she was little before going to bed, is a simple exercise that comes out of positive psych called Three Good Things and Why. Mm-hmm. It, it's a simple exercise that builds both gratitude and agency. You just focus on something good in my life that I had something to do with, that I made happen, right? Not like, oh, it was a nice pretty day out because the sun was shining because I may or may not have had much impact on you know, whether the sun was <laughs> shining. Right? But something concrete that I did have something to do with. And again, it builds both a sense of gratitude for what's good in your life as well as a sense of agency. And uh, as, I, as I said, I used to do this with my daughter in bed just before she'd go to sleep when she was around seven, eight, nine years old. And it was a wonderful, empowering, and gratitude-filled way to end the day. So you've given us so much to think about, and I know you've got a lot of great information out there about the work you're doing in India. You want to tell us where we can go to find out more? Well, if you go to our website, www.corestone.org, uh, there's certainly lots of information on the site. If you go to the international section, you'll see information on projects that are ongoing in India. Uh, in, no, in those sections, as well as in a research section, you'll find information on a recent randomized control trial we did with around uh, close to 3,500 girls and roughly 70 schools. And we had uh, it was a fantastic, really first-of-its-kind uh, trial at this scale that really showed the impacts of resilience training, not just on, on mental health, but as well as on physical health, um, physical health knowledge and attitudes and behaviors and uh, things like preventing early marriage and, and staying in school and so on. So it, it was a very exciting trial and we have information about it uh, on our website for those who are interested to, to read those kinds of reports. Terrific. Terrific. Well, Steve, it's been wonderful talking with you. Thank you so much, first of all, for the work you're doing and the way that you're truly changing the world and changing our culture. And we just wish you you continued success, and we look forward to uh, hearing more about what you're doing. Thank you. 
Thanks for your support. I appreciate it. If you would like a free sketch note of this episode or to learn more about Corestone, you can visit livehappynow.com. That's it for this episode of Live Happy Now. I'm your host, J.R. Houston, once again thanking you and inviting you to be a part of your uh, conversation, a part of this conversation, a part of all the conversations involved with Live Happy Now by finding us on Twitter at Live Happy, Facebook.com slash Live Happy. You can even search us on Instagram by searching My Live Happy or just send us an email, podcast at livehappy.com. We love to hear from you. For Paula Phelps and Steve Leventhal, once again, I'm J.R. Houston saying so long, thank you, and remember to always live happy.